host is Jay Cut, and this is the K Cut, your friendly neighborhood cinema podcast. I'm James, music producer and content creator. I release and produce music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I also am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Hi, I'm Rachel. I am a certified strange film person, and I've worked with film in Europe and Canada, and my interests include language and world cinema. Hello, this is Andreas. I also love movies, except probably not the ones that most people like because I have a sad taste in movies. But uh, nonetheless, I still love talking about them on Films Fatal, and I too specialize in the you know, the archiving and preservation of films. And speaking of the preservation of films, today is another episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So in case you're brand new to this, all three of us recommend a film to one another that we've never seen before. And considering that all three of us have vastly different tastes in films, but we have some common ground, this usually ends up being a lot of fun, even though this is only episode two. A little bit of a change up this time. We still have our three recommendations, but we've incorporated a new element, kind of like a book club but a movie club we have one film that none of us have seen that we all watch each month and we report on it in the second half what film is it you have to wait to find out or just read the show notes and be impatient but for now we are doing each other's recommendations so this was a very interesting time as it always is with cinematic smorgasbord I recommended something to you, James. You recommended something to Rachel. Rachel, you recommended something to me. So who wants to report their findings first? Um, I'll go ahead. Sure. So James recommended a film to me that I would probably never have sought out on my own. And that's Robert Rodriguez's Mariachi, or El Mariachi, sorry. And to be honest, the only Rodriguez I had ever seen before this was Spy Kids. Oh, wow. So I was going in for something new. What really impressed me, it's a very short movie, and yet he's able to pack so much into it. There's it, there's a lot of very dynamic camera angles, go from action-packed to funny to moody and sad in the space of a couple of frames. It's a movie that always feels alive to me, if that makes any sense. It's always just going and going and going on to the next thing. So it was a very entertaining watch. Yeah. James, what made you choose it for this week? I chose it. Primarily because, one, I thought you'd enjoy it. I did. I know you're into a foreign language film. I thought this would be a fun one. I don't know how much Spanish you actually know. I don't know all the languages that you speak. Um, I have to confess, the only one I could legally get was the English dub. So this added an unintentional layer of hilarity. Oh, really? Yeah, and I hate dubbing, but I, I soldiered through it because I thought, I'm just going to watch this movie. YouTube rentals did not have the Spanish dub. Yeah, they, or the Spanish they never do, which is really frustrating with YouTube, unfortunately. That's interesting because it was released in theaters subtitled. Yeah, but I still enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but yeah, anyway, the but it was a really good pick, I thought. Well, I also picked it because, you know, you're into more of the classic era and that is, you know, done. You know, it's a lot more elaborate when those productions are put together. But this is the film that was famously done for seven thousand dollars. And I also wanted to take a moment to kind of let you in on some of the things that you wouldn't know about it unless you looked it up. Yeah, like I couldn't believe what he did on that budget. He actually uh, wrote the screenplay during his stay at some medical facility testing some, I think it was like cholesterol drugs or something like that, because he he was a scientific laborer to get most of the funds. But he based the screenplay about what he had access to, and that's it. So he had access to that town in Mexico, the star of the movie, Carlos Gallardo. That's one of his best friends, and his family comes, comes from kind of a well-off family down there. So he had access to the whole town and his family's workers. He had access to the school bus. He had access to that bar you know, and the rooms in there, the single cell jailhouse. So he had all these things for free. So he wrote the entire screenplay based on that list of items alone. That's amazing. That sounds like the cinematic equivalent of that TV show Chopped. 
A little bit. And then also the other thing is he shot it all by himself and only had one crew member who would have been an actor who had played a part who on their off day would be shooting with him. So he shot everything by himself. Wow. And what's even more interesting is, and this is why I'm so disappointed that they had only the English dub, because when he shot the film, the camera was too loud. So he shot it without location sound. Then after had them reenact it for audio because he had a, a tape recorder and then he manually synced the audio in post. That's crazy. That must have been unbearable to do. <laughs> it's all detailed in his book, uh, Rebel Without a Crew, which is the diary he wrote from around that time. He synced it manually. And the best part is there's a lot of it where it syncs up because there's a lot of the really good performances really kind of stuck with them after the fact. So, you know, oftentimes it's not hard to say the same thing in the same manner twice. So that's what he did. He literally just they'd shoot the scene, then they'd redo it and then they'd go from there. And then also he actually when he brought it back, because actually a little bit of backstory, he shot this originally for the Spanish video market. And he was actually going to sell it to the Spanish video market. He was going to do that, take the money from that to make another one, take the money from the second one, do a trilogy. Then he was going to cut together a demo reel for Hollywood. But then, you know, he ended up getting an agent. And then obviously the movie got in the hands of Columbia. And then from there, his career took off. But one of the things that has that's significant about the video market was he actually edited the picture on VHS. He sent the film reels out to be transferred because he prefers editing on VHS because when he was a kid, when he was about 13, his dad had a pretty decent job. So he had bought a dual deck VHS player, which could record and it came with some like, you know, wired camera attached to it. So he would make his own little movies and he spent doing that, doing that for like 10 years and then went off to college. So he'd been making movies this whole time. So, you know, and he's openly stated he hates film and editing with film. So, yeah, he actually edited it with vhs and i think the dvd release i don't know if the one that on streaming is that but i had a dvd release where the, it was that copy that they used and he said that the color correction was literally a standard single frame like you start it at one point and it just goes it's like an auto one but you know it's amazing the scenes he shot for that because you know and it's funny there's you know this dream sequence movie or dream sequence shots of the movie he saw he shot those literally to fill time if it was too short really yeah he literally just threw this together. He didn't even want it to come out. He said it was a home movie and he didn't want them releasing it. Like he was mortified at the thought of it. And yet here he is. It's just a good example of when you don't have the money, creativity trumps all. Exactly. And boy, did he get creative making this. I I mean, even just from watching the movie, you can get a sense of how much they had to go around things. But the stories you've mentioned here, like, wow. Yeah. And he literally did everything, you know, write it, wrote it, directed it. You know, I don't think he scored it. The songs that the mariachi plays were actually a friend of his. But yeah, and then, you know, he edited himself. He literally, he does like every single movie. He literally does everything himself. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, that's why they call him the one man crew, because he literally does everything himself. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I'm not a super big fan of his films, but he's like one of those guys where if he's talking about how he's making something or just about the film industry as a whole, you listen because he really knows everything inside and out. And like I've studied the El Mariachi production in one of my university classes in my undergrad and just down to like not even buying clapboards and figuring out how to like, you know, use the crew to like hold up their hands and show like what shot they're on and everything. Like he cut whatever corners were possible to make this, you know, as, as affordable as he could. And that for his first film like this that takes a lot of knowledge because you know it's one thing to know what you need it's another thing to know 
how to get by not using what you need by other by other means. So, I mean, he he's like a masterful filmmaker before he even started. Has anyone ever made a movie of the making of this movie? Because I feel like that could be a hit. Yeah, like a Hearts of Darkness. That would have been perfect. Yeah. Or Ed Wood. It, there's only the book Rebel Without a Crew, and it's actually a very good read. But there's also one gray shot that he actually there is actually kind of something he does what he calls the 10 minute film school and he does it in a lot of his bonus features where you know because in the chapter in the book he said you can literally learn everything about filmmaking in 10 minutes which is obviously kind of hyperbole but he said it's pretty straightforward so he actually shows some different shots and the shot is there's a shot where um i think what was it someone shooting a bunch of people with a machine gun and it has this kind of rapid paced editing. It's because the gun they used was only a single shot and it would eject and they could only do that. So he shot multiple shots of it and then cut it together as a machine gun. That's crazy. Like, yeah, it's like he's just the dude who could do everything. And that's just why I love the film. Also, it's just it's pretty entertaining. Just this weird wonky situation of a mariachi really trying is. to find work. It's got this absurd humor to it, even in scenes that are uh, more sober seeming. He's got it's just. I found the whole thing really funny and in a lot of ways, maybe the dubbing didn't help. That's still like Rodriguez's style, regardless of dubbing and whatnot, even like Sin City, which is like a very, um, it's supposed to be like noir-esque. It's, it's still very much tongue in cheek and like sarcastic or just, uh, electrifying to the point of not being a dark film, but just like a thrilling one nonetheless. So that's just Rodriguez. Even in like, spy kids and stuff you know so much of it is like you know wink wink nudge nudge to the parents like he's just he's always got that kind of humor to his films regardless of what they are yeah he's just fun Mm -hmm. so what were you assigned this week james Andreas assigned me my first Wong Kar Wai film, as he said he would. Like he's been threatening for weeks. (laughs) Yes, he's been threatening me for the whole filmography, but yeah, I don't have time for that. But yeah, I watched the film Chungking Express. And? This is one of the most interestingly unique movies that I've ever seen ever that takes a simple concept and inverts it in a way that I've never imagined. So that's a good thing, right? Yes, it's a good thing. I just... You see the typical character or main character, uh, let's just say guy main character, who's dealing with the breakup of a girlfriend. This does this in a way that makes all of those look like a complete joke. It's surprising how nuanced this film is for how simple the concept is. Like even down to the look of the film, you know, the saturated colors that make it almost look like it was almost like it was shot overexposed. Like the lighting is very you know, it's piercing in certain shots and the colors are saturated. It's, you know, has this really kind of deafened tone to the look. Also, there's certain shots of where this kind of gonzo style of shooting and editing, especially in the first sequence, because it's also split into two halves, which I always love when, you know, people go that route, because once one story stopped and the other started, I was like, wait, hold up. What? Wait, can we resolve this? Because, you know, it starts off with, you know, this police officer who's dealing with the loss of his girlfriend. And then, you know, I'm not going to give too much away, but, you know, it's parallel to this story of this woman who's a drug dealer. And I just found that so bizarre because their their stories are intercut to each other. And then they only sort of intersect in the last few minutes. And I was just like, wait, hold on. How'd this happen? But why does it also make sense? And then you get to the second half and it's dealing with another police officer who's dealing with a breakup of a girlfriend. And then, you know, he comes across a girl who's you know, secretly in love with him, but also has access to his apartment when he's not there, but he doesn't know it yet. And then, you know, along the way, she helps him get over this girl. And then I've, I'm not going to spoil the ending because the ending is actually great. For those who haven't seen, I definitely recommend it to everybody. It's just really interesting how it views grief in a way that 
is almost therapeutic and almost that the grief in itself is therapeutic, not just, oh, this situation comes along and helps. It's like, you know, there's a certain happening that helps him get over these things. But yeah, I don't know. You could tell how personal this film is. It's very much in the way like this is a weird example, but Big Blue Velvet for David Lynch, for example, that's a very personal film. And you can tell there's a certain level of humanity in that that isn't in his other films. I feel that way with this in context of other types of cinema. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And not to mention, you know, Asian cinema always wins with me for style. I don't know why they just they have style down packed. They could take the most plain story, but just the scenery, the settings, specifically the city settings here. I also like how the main focus ends up being at this food stand. That's almost the center point of it all. Yeah, yeah, it's express. Yeah, it's almost so silly. But there's two points that I found really fascinating. And these are two of the most nuanced parts of the film. The whole and I'm not going to tell anybody out there listening. You have to watch to understand it. But the pineapple cans. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was genius. Especially when he tries to go by that last one and he's freaking out on the dude because he doesn't have them. And then and it's the like, use, why would I have them? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, oh, there's only a couple hours left before they expire. He's like, here, you want some expired food? It gives him the can of <laughs> the box of all that food. And then the use of the mamas and the papas, California dreaming. A California dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing people never forget about it. It's constantly recurring in the second half. And then once you get to the end, it all clicks and like, you know, it's pulled together and you're like, oh, because it works on so many levels. I mean, you know, just as aside from being a great song, the relationship that the female character in the second half has to the song and how it kind of informs her life towards the end. But then, you know, it's almost this thing that where it comes to, you know, it helps it almost helps him in a way especially when he play when he's playing it towards the end. Something that is worth noting, if uh, you're not too, too familiar with Asian cinema, like, or Hong Kong cinema, Tony Lung in the second half is basically like the Leonardo DiCaprio of, of Chinese cinema. So this guy oh. is like a veteran inside and out. But Fei Wong, the female actress, is a singer. This is she is not an actress by any means. This was like her first role, I believe. And oh, she was amazing in it. She really was. Exactly. So it's like it's almost as if you cast like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and let's say, you know, not Lady Gaga, Selena Gomez with acting experience, but somebody like oh, what would be a good example? Um like Katy Perry and expecting her to shine. And you get this really different sense because, you know, you hit it on the nose when he said that Asian cinema, you know, especially Japanese or Hong Kong, is very stylish. And not to keep beating a dead horse here, but Wong Kar Wai is like in the top five most stylish directors of all time. So it only makes sense that he would have something like this, like this crazy juxtaposition between somebody who's never acted before, but is still a superstar. And she also did uh, 2046, which is also another Wong Kar Wai film. But outside of that, I don't think she's done many movies. So yeah, Fei Wong and Tony Lung, who like at this point has been in film since like the 80s. Like he's like a veteran. And you'll probably hear this from me a, a lot on this pod. Tony Lung is like one of the greatest actors of all time, but like his filmography is borderline spotless. Like, it, like there's like zero films that are terrible. So I can't stress that enough. But like that juxtaposition is just fantastic. And you also have the the previous 
story, which is almost like an appetizer, even though that one's a lot more daring and a lot more moody. The second one's a lot more fleeting and like, you know, carefree. So it's like this fever dream between, you know, like the two clashing styles with the two clashing people in both stories. There's a lot of pairing in this film. And speaking of pairing, there's also Fallen Angels, which there was supposed to be a third story in Chunking Express that just didn't fit. So he made and spun it into two stories called Fallen Angels. So I don't know if you noticed, but Chunking Express is very bright and vibrant. Fallen Angels is like the nighttime version of Chunking Express, a lot moodier, a lot more depressing. So if you like this, that's a very underrated film to check out. Chunking Express, so there, there are some films that could only be described with like a sensation. And this one's just like, freedom and just blissfulness uh, blissfulness and just daydreaming it's so interesting that you and james have both mentioned that i haven't seen that movie since uh, i saw it in a film class so maybe 10 years ago and that movie is so striking that the minute you guys brought it up i was instantly brought back to the, those visuals that music and Mm -hmm. you're right it's a very calm almost soothing movie in a way it's sort of like life goes on and hearing you both describe it that way i mean you can't see it but i've been smiling the whole time listening to you guys talk about it because it's just such a peaceful movie to watch in some ways like Wong Kar Wai is one of my all-time favorite directors and all of his films are colorful all of his films are stylish but this mm -hmm. one is like a sensation like because james this is your first of his films and the mood for love is depressing. Happy together is bittersweet. Um, the Grandmaster is like thrilling and exhilarating. 2046 is like a dreamlike, but this is the one that feels like this. No other Wonkar Y film feels like you're being tossed through the air, hanging onto a hang glider. Like that's it's just this one. And his other films are as um, engaging and, and colorful, but this one I felt like was great to recommend to you because you can't really explain it. I still think in the mood for love is this opus, but this is, this is not far behind because there are many films that you just, that just don't feel like anything else like this. Yeah. I think there's two takeaways I took from this one was I really appreciated this kind of existential feedback loop. Both of the main characters were in and it just took, something simple to kind of knock him off of it. And then the other thing is I understand Barry Jenkins filmography so much more after watching this movie because of his appreciation yes. of Wong Kar Wai. He's, he's, he is a big fan of Wong Kar Wai. So um, especially in the mood for love and happy together, those are like the two films that made moonlight. So, you know, I just, just his choice in color palette specifically for, you know, if Beale street could talk and moonlight, I just saw it like, Oh, this is where this comes from. But also this execution of this, you know, tormenting sense of longing for something to ground you. Yes. I recommend it to anybody who likes movies in general. Honestly, I would put this in the same category as Mona Lisa. Like I would put that in a list of films that are just great, regardless of their status in film history, primarily because they also kind of operate on a similar color palette theory. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very colorful. Yeah. Christopher Doyle is one of my all time favorite cinematographers and his partnership with, um, with Wonka Y is unprecedented. The fact that they never got a nomination together is like actually appalling. So tell us what did Rachel give you to watch? So Rachel and I were talking about this film not too long ago and uh, both Rachel and I, as you will find out in the next couple of weeks, cause it's award season, 
love playing the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. but that also play that also means playing everything ahead of it. So even though I don't really like them, the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs, the yep. like BAFTAs are okay, but the Golden Globes. So I still have a, a, a knowledge of them because I play the Oscars. And when you brought up that Pride was this dark horse film that was nominated Out at the nowhere. 2015, yeah, Golden Globes for Best Comedy Musical, I was like, uh, what now? Yeah. I had never heard of this in my life. I so think we even talked about this in one of our early episodes because it was my recommend one week. Yes, exactly. And that's yeah. when you brought it up and I said the what now? So Matthew Warkus, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, his film Pride in 2014, first off, I have to start off by saying Golden Globes, you don't know what a comedy is. This film is so much more moving and, you know, impactful. It's funny, but, like, let, let's give you a bit of the skinny. The comedy category has always been a mess, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So this is based on a true story of the Lesbians and Gay Support the Minors campaign of the 80s over in the UK. And this starts off right at the beginning with, with a younger character who kind of just jumps in to this controversial pride parade and i believe it takes place over the course of a year you know from like the previous pride and it ends off on the next year's pride and it covers most of the 1984 minor strikes that'll be roughly a year yeah exactly so from this young perspective who's played by george mckay by the way uh you know the the lead of 1917 for recent recognition i guess so he joins he joins this campaign just because he felt that it was right and it felt like that it was his calling and through that you see all of these other storylines so older people younger people in the gay lesbian community and their support of what was going on with the minors and their families they wanted to keep raising money but nobody wanted to support them because of you know prejudice so you know they would stand outside trying to collect coins people would spin in their direction call them derogatory terms and there had always been some tension because a lot of these smaller communities tended to be very conservative and so a lot of the people in the lgbt community didn't really trust them enough to raise money for them and so it was it was a hard campaign to sell yes yes exactly so yeah throughout the film though there's like this it's not like a humorous tone but you know there's like this this optimism employed which results in you know some comedic relief but overall it's it's mostly a moving film and all of these different storylines between first person in the uk i believe or one of the first people who who contracted aids and the stigma surrounding that when the aids crisis was still being misrepresented by the media you know from the female perspective and the lesbians of the area and what they had to go through so many different things were happening at once but everybody tries to carry like a smile on their face and of course the film isn't only strictly monotonous with this it, it dips into some of the more disheartening moments for for people trying to run the campaign and the stuff that they have to face and some other participants or um, or witnesses who feel like this is the time to maybe come out now more than ever to try and show their support. And even though the film carries a bit of a conventional, like, uh, you know, by the numbers, you know, uplifting story, especially with the music and whatnot, I feel like the, the, the personal stories themselves are just so full of life and just so hard-hitting that mm-hmm. I feel like the that the film resonates on that alone. And most of these people were real. Some are composites, but several of these people yeah. were alive to see the movie and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Especially the Dominic West character. Jonathan. Like, oh, Jonathan's great. Yeah, the fact that it's like, yes, okay, like, I, I love that character so much. And just how 
carefree and unwilling to love himself amidst everything. Mm-hmm. It's one of those films where you read all of the, the ending title cards, and it's not so much like, a, okay, now the movie's finished and I'm reading all the extra stuff, la-di-da. It's interesting to see where everybody ended up. Or every all of the real characters, because as you said, they're all uh, some of them are composites. So seeing all of like the the real turnouts, and you know, having your heart broken by some, uh, feeling really happy about some, that that's what it's all about, really. So I think like it's it's not it's a harmless film, and I think it tells a very loving story. The the colors are fantastic. The soundtrack's a little on the nose, but you can't really go wrong with some really good you know some really good hits of of the time of the 80s in the uk scene so and i love the bread and roses scene yeah yeah like it's there's just so much going on like if you want a film that's not gonna change your world but it's a it's a safe film that you can watch but it's still great enough that like you know it's colorful it's well acted it's got enough art it's it's lovingly made pride's a very good recommendation james you haven't seen pride have you i have not okay but you know as we always say i'm gonna have to check that out yeah, absolutely. Oh, we always have to have a once. Got a list a mile long. Track. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So then the second part of this is that we came up with a movie that none of us had seen before, which is a very difficult task. And we all watched it recently and we'd like to discuss it. Um, James, it was initially your idea, wasn't it? So Yes, it was mine. Mm-hmm. So, but like, I'm very surprised that none of us have seen this. By the I know, way, right? I'm surprised I have it. Well, we all knew about it. But. Yes. <laughs> so, what I suggested was the movie Shaft. None of us had seen it before February of 2021. That's very bizarre. Turning 50 this year. One of the great films that kicked off the black exploitation film movement. And none of us can sing the theme, unfortunately, because the copyright police will get us. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to disrespect, you know, the uh, the spirit of Isaac Hayes. I love the guy, so. <laughs> this film was as amazing as I thought it would be. Okay. Rachel, what did you think? Like, just on like one sentence. I really enjoyed it. I think my favorite part was the atmosphere it created of just New York and the time and the characters and this sort of world of the underground crime. For me, uh, in one sentence before we dive deep down, I found it more more fun than profound, but God, was it fun. It was. I found it a lot oh, of fun. Oh, it definitely was fun. So let's get down into it. So yes, this this did kick off and was a major proponent of the black exploitation era of the 70s. So, why would that be? What made this so interesting? And actually, interesting, interestingly enough, you know, El Mariachi um, kicked off this episode. Not that this was the same budget, but I definitely feel like this was similar, where so much of the film was made out of love and just, like, trying to work around a very tight budget just to make this thing work. And what did you guys think about that? Like, how noticeable was it? Or how creative were some of the the techniques or the action? Well, some of that sound editing was a little bit off, I gotta say. Um, Was, okay, so so Roundtree was was dubbed, right? He had to have been. He was dubbed for most of it. But you'd have a conversation with three actors where they'd be on, like, three different planets, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there wasn't even just a dubbing. It was clearly, like, um, there was... there was zero like room recording or like a, you know uh, room sound recording or anything like that because each time it would like cut to like a different perspective as you said Rachel it sounded like it clearly was from like different takes mm-hmm. which are supposed to create that illusion and this was 1971 this isn't like 
you know, the 30s where that type of stuff was still happening in basically every movie. So uh, Richard Roundtree was like God himself. His voice would like boom and, and everybody else would like like melt into like the background noise. Right. But the charisma of Richard Roundtree is so, so captivating because he oh, delivered all those lines perfectly. Well, the thing that has to be understood about the Black Exploitation movement was there were two movies released this year. One being Shaft, which was released by a studio, and then the other was an independent picture, which was Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by Melvin Van Peebles. So you had simultaneously indie film and mainstream film kicking off this movement, and then it just, you know, dovetailed into all these different avenues because a lot of them, you know, there's so many movies that took on so many different nuanced kind of genre pictures that there was so many different things to you know, watch and consume. It was something for everybody. You know, there are these films that were more, you know, more crime-based films or, you know, you had the horror movie ones. You had, you know, there were martial arts ones. There were all sorts of different energies all collectively, you know, boiling in this, you know, pot of, I don't know what to call it, but it also marked an important turn in the industry because it gave so many black people jobs in the industry that they've never really had before other than, you know, kind of maybe being a crew member or playing a character that would be sort of the help type character. Now they're in the forefront being the stars. And another really cool thing about it, um, you know, the fact that, you know, it's such a shoestring budget for its time, um, even though it was made with like a mo- uh, with like a major studio. So many of the effects, you could tell how they were done, but that didn't matter. It's almost like one of those movies where even if you could tell how everything is done or what's going on, it's just made by people who love film. And you're there to enjoy it. Exactly. You know, you're not there to like critique it or anything. It's just so much fun and just like made with so much heart. And you could tell that everybody who was working on this was like, you know, a friend of one another. And the fact that it was employing, you know, so many, so many jobs of people who were, uh, you know, cast out by this industry for so long or exploited, um, and then you get this really fun picture where everybody was having a riot, throwing people out of windows or, you know, like uh, trying to dodge stabbing or, uh, you know, like attacking the camera. And then you have that badass Isaac Hayes score to go with it. Like, this is just made with pure love. Which was just such a hit. I've heard the soundtrack before, but like in context, the whole thing is like, Man, what that guy could do with like a couple of notes breathes life into anything. So that's exactly like the final touch that this needed because everything else is like fun, well intentioned, but not quite there professionally. All you needed was the Isaac Hayes touch, and suddenly this thing has so much life in it, and it just it it's like untouchable. So it's not a perfect film, but God is it one that's just so much fun to watch. I think the character of Shaft is also really easy to sort of gather around because he's just always in control. He's always thinking about the next step. He really is a detective in the classic vein. And Richard Roundtree's performance is excellent. So, you know, we were talking about mystery movies last week, and I don't think it can succeed without a compelling lead. And in this case, we really got one. Oh, yeah, we most definitely did. I think one of the other things I appreciate about this film is exploitation kind of sidesteps a lot of movies from this era to where the things that are problematic in retrospect are almost tongue in cheek compared to a lot of other material to where it's it's not as cringy because you can tell everybody's either in on the joke or they understand like hey this is just how the picture is these are you know these movies while they're supposed to be from a business standpoint they should be taken seriously you could tell that 
this is designed in a certain way on purpose. Yeah, it's like Dolomite, where this isn't meant to cause a statement outside of what it's saying, you know, on a society basis. It's meant to just be watched and enjoyed by a community. And a lot of that is like self-referential for sure. Yeah, it's also impressive how it started the trend of how black exploitation films would you know further develop because you would have a lot of these characters with you know these black actors who play these leads who are, have have this standpoint of power and they're revered by everybody they come across but also my appreciation for the black exploitation soundtrack stems from how the fact that it's so integral to the film but it exists outside of it but they also get the most notable black artists of the time to make these soundtracks and that's what I like about them because you know, they operate on three levels. They operate as a score because, you know, they're half or largely instrumental. They operate mm-hmm. as a soundtrack like, hey, this is an album from the movie, but it also becomes a definitive work in an artist's catalog. Like take Curtis Mayfield's Superfly. That's one of his most regarded right. albums in general, but it's so attached to that movie that you can't think about it without it. Or The Heart of They Fall, which was like a big introduction to reggae music for a lot of Americans. And part of that was actually because I remember I, I think I listened to some of that. Some of those were actually a few of the songs were from the made for the film, but a lot of those was actually just a compilation of singles that were going around at the time. So it's literally just like a fun compilation soundtrack for the most part. So I meant, I meant the harder they come. Sorry. The harder they fall is the next line in the song, but the harder they come. Oh, that's right. That's what it's called. The harder they fall is a 1956 movie with Humphrey Bogart. So, you know, goes full circle in terms of detectives. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> Although I do love Humphrey Bogart. Yes, that, that that was probably in the back of my mind. The harder they come is what I meant. Uh, that was the, the introduction to reggae, unless Humphrey Bogart knew something that we didn't. It's also impressive how often this is, it turns up in media throughout the years, whether, you know, it's always spoofed in something. Whether it's a direct movie that's supposed to be a joking or poking fun at this sort of thing or just references in anything ever like a tv show will make a reference there's a memorable shaft moment in that one it really all came to head when the release of black dynamite because that movie is designed to parody it but it executes it exactly how it was done to the point of where it's almost unreal that it was made in modern times but they do this thing where you know they put intentional screw-ups that were accidents in movies in the movie. Like, you know, you'll have one of the side characters say, (laughs) he'll say the tone or expression written in the script before he says the line. So like angry, la-di-da. Yeah, something like that. Or, you know, you'll see a boom mic just fall in or they'll have to like do, you know, they'll have an accidental mess up, but then they, you know, redo, they keep the redone shot and the accident shot. So it kind of has this like, you know, quick cutaway come back and then they redo it but that's why it's amazing because again it's not about the end result like changing the world or anything it's about the movie making process the seeing these guys having fun is us having fun exactly so overall we all like shaft absolutely i I love it (laughs) cool that's a thumbs up from all of us for uh for this version of our of our movie club so to help you all at home play along if you wish you have a month to prepare Rachel, what is next month's edition of the movie club that all of us have never seen, and now we're going to? Me and You and Everyone We Know, directed by Miranda July. That sounds exciting. I've been dying to see that for ages. So Same. That movie is for me, you, and everyone we know, basically. It's the title, and that's who's going to be watching it for next month's version of the movie club. But for now, it is time for our 
departure with our weekly recommendations. Rachel, I'm guessing it's not that film. No. What film is it? I am going with something else this week. Um, an older British film called Kind Hearts and Coronets, circa 1949. Oh. It is a very dark comedy about rich people and murder. It's wonderful. It's You, you feel terrible for laughing, but you can't resist. And Alec Guinness, I will not spoil what his role is, but he gives one of the greatest performances in film history, in my opinion. Definitely check it out. I was going to say what the gimmick was, but since you don't, since you have it, don't I won't. It. But uh, if you're a fan of his, you're going to get more than your money's worth with this. It's a great film, by the way. Uh, James, what is yours? Well, speaking of black exploitation flicks and parodies of black exploitation flicks, I'm going to go with Pootie Tang. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is a parody black exploitation film that was written and directed by Louis C.K. Really? Yes. And it's based on a character from Chris Rock's TV show back in the day. And it's starring Lance Crowther, who plays Pootie Tang, who was a writer for Chris Rock. And yeah, it's it's as I described, it's a parody of expectation flick. It's, you know, the character Pootie Tang, who's this you know revered person in the area he's in. And he, you know, he gets into some crazy shenanigans and it kind of plays out. It's almost similar to a Shaft type movie. Actually, I think it is a Shaft type movie because I think there is a kidnapping of someone's daughter in this movie. But it's also funny because Lucy K actually got fired from it and they had someone recut it. And it's actually really bad, but it's just super entertaining. And it's funny because I always wonder what the final product that he would have wanted was. Because I think when I think Roger Ebert did a review and it was a bad review, but he said this movie's just not finished. Huh. And then uh, John, John Waters speaks highly of the character, you know, because he's he, he said there should be a book about it because he's almost like this urban legend type character that everybody needs to know about. So, yeah, it's just a fun film. And it's also it's like one of the few things I actually like like from Louis C.K. because like I'm kind of iffy on him for the most part, just as a person, well, especially, especially now. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. It's just a fun ride altogether. I've never seen that. Neither as I. you would say, <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out. As, as for mine, I don't believe I've recommended this before. If I have, uh, let me know. I'm going to go with one of my favorite films by one of my favorite directors, Wayne Werner Fassbinder, uh, The Marriage of Maria Braun, oh, which yes. is a very interesting take on on what love is, you know, during wartime. So basically, you have uh, the titular Maria Braun, uh, married to, to Herman Braun, uh, during the, the final days of World War II. And right away he goes missing. So she stays a married woman living in like an abandoned ghost town, Germany. But at the same time, you know, she's trying to move on with her life. So basically what happens, you know, it's it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation. Is she married? Is she not married? And without spoiling halfway through or so, that basically gets spun on its head. My favorite moment without spoiling again, the climax is a brilliant version of soundtrack dissonance where Fassbinder plays with, you know, music and the jarring images on screen and how they, they contrast one another. I just... Thank you. He was one of the all-time great filmmakers, and this is a film of his where you really get to see a lot of his experimentation come into play. So that's my recommendation. I once had to write an essay on that movie, and I got a B, and I'm still not over it. Why did you get a B, though? I don't know. I, I think it was probably... Well, never mind. Oh, that's too bad. So with that, that was the K-Cut, and now let's head into the L-Cut. <laughs> 